Um, and, and my biggest concern is sure the concern for the business and the reputation and the brand, but really is about our people. For me, it's a red flag of is this the type of organization that I want to subject our, our team to, right? So if this is how we're going to be treated, how are they going to treat our employees? You know, and so that often goes through my head is that um, these situations where RFPs are used as a power move to me is very indicative of how our employees may be treated. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Uh, the uh, UPS store that I've been using for eight years has been steadily declining. Like the service has been going downhill a little bit um, every year. And then they just stopped maintaining the interior of the building. It just, it started to feel really run down and janky and almost like it, it would be like one of your neighbors decided to set up a, a mailbox um, store in their garage and just kind of had stuff off to the corner. Like there was always random. St- it would just felt weird. Anyway, I got an email this morning saying due to a lack of a agreement between UPS corporate uh, as well as an, a dispute with their landlord, they're closing down the business. Oh, okay. Because the UPS stores are franchises. Oh, they're franchises. I did not realize that. Um, which I think is different from FedEx, uh, which are corporate owned, but I don't think FedEx offers mailboxes. Otherwise I would use FedEx because every time I've gone into the local FedEx office, it's been super clean, really friendly. Um, needless to say, I'm researching updating addresses now because I have to move the address because the store is yeah. closing. So I, I think maybe a blessing in disguise because it was a, uh, it's not a good experience going in there. And it was a, a much, it was a considerable drive. It was like a 40 minute round trip for me to oh, go geez, check, okay. check my mail. So moving it to the one that's literally down the street will probably be nicer in the long run. So, and it's a nice brand new store and they've always been super helpful. That's where I've been shipping all my uh, coffee and stuff from. So nice, nice. Yeah. You got the coffee. I did. It's good. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. So. It's good. I need to make my afternoon cup. So I'm going to do that after this. Yeah. I think I sent you the dark roast, right? No, you sent me the medium roast. Oh, I did. Okay. Yeah. That one actually is my favorite. And -hmm. the dark roast is very good. Um, The medium roast is the P it's a pea berry bean. Um, And it is, it is fantastic. In fact, someone, someone messed with me like, how can I find something similar in my grocery store? I'm like, no, that's not going to (laughs) happen. Right. Like, Literally, I picked out these beans and I own these beans. <laughs> and nice. the guy that roasted it roasted 30 bags. You know, he was roasting like 30 bags at a time. We're talking like small artists, small batch. like small, small batch. Like you can't get this in your grocery store. So it's delicious. 
Anyway, I've been having fun with the coffee. I'll have to send you. I think I have a few bags laying around. One of the dark roasts. The dark roast is pretty good as well. So. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I, I'm partial to medium roast. Yeah, coffee. Um, so well, I mean, what, what's your preparation? <sighs> like, I, what's I your mean, brew? What's your brewer? Like, uh, it's drip. It's, it's a drip drip brewer and it's okay. like one of the combination ones where it'll make either a 12 cup pot or mm. it'll make the single cup. And right. so with the single cup, it'll take either the K cups or like, it's got the little thing you just About the, the basket into. Yeah, yeah. The little basket for it. Um, it. I can't remember the brand off the top of my head. Um, it's not a Mr. Coffee kind of thing, but you know, it, it's nothing, nothing fancy. I mean, um, you seen my collection. Yeah, I've seen I've seen your setup. Mine is problem. nowhere near that. <laughs> I got a problem collecting brewers. Uh, mm -hmm. But I've been doing so I normally do the espresso machine right in there. That's mm -hmm. my that's my workhorse. But the last couple of weeks I've been really into doing pour over. Um, so I've actually been doing an espresso in the morning and a pour over in the afternoon. So I've I've upped my coffee consumption. Nice. So <laughs> yeah good stuff yeah yeah well there you go welcome to coffee wait coffee talk that was the that was coffee on, talk that was on was saturday, uh, night saturday night live back in the yeah. 90s mike myers yeah my when, when mike myers was on saturday night live that to me had to be like the pinnacle of that show i mean i i wasn't uh i was too young when like what eddie murphy and uh, Chevy Chase, Chevy Bill, Chase Murray. Bill Murray, like I was Man too Apple. young for that. Yeah. I mean, incredible cast. So I'm sure that yeah. was, but my, my like high school era was the, the, the Mike Myers kind of. My, my favorite was Norm McDonald. Dana, Dana Carvey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just so good. So yeah. man, we're all over the place today. We are, we are, but it's good. Cause you've given me my segue. Okay. So when we're ready to actually yeah, get let's, into do it. It. let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I want to start a topic talking about buying and selling services. You know, you know how you know how's you know experiences going about you know procuring services, but then also experience selling it. You know, on both mm -hmm. sides. So today I want to focus in on procurement. Um, from get me from, in trouble. I am. I know, but okay. believe me, like, you know, it, it's a hot button topic. So I'm, I'm going to try to push it today. Um, so, you know, you were talking about, you know, you, you, you got a roast master involved with the blend that, that you were looking to do. How, how'd you come across it? Like, how did you, how did you, you know, for lack of a better term, procure those services? Did you, you know, put out an RFP saying, Hey, look, I'm looking to create a coffee blend. Here's my, my 30 page RFP. And I, and I don't know enough about the coffee industry yet, but I'm sure that's probably a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure there's like a RFP process to find a roaster. And, 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 and I think that this is such a great visual for, for how we think about this, but, but no. So, um, the way that, the way that I went about it is that, um, the company that we use to purchase and import the beans, um, is from Uganda um, also works with some small roasters in, in California. Um, and actually a couple in Germany and one in Italy. Uh, and so, you know, they live in this space day in and day out, 
And so we said, okay, well, actually they said, you know, let's figure out really what your style is and what you're looking to create. And we can give you a list of roasters that we think kind of match what you're trying to create. And then why don't you go talk to them? Why don't you try some of their roasts? Why don't you get a sense of, you know, which ones are the right match for you? So that was the process that we went through. We, we, we asked tr a trusted expert that, that works in a space every day that, that we don't. We, they, they were interested in learning what we were trying to create so they could take that information and say, okay, here's some possible partners for you to think about. And then we went and did our own kind of due diligence and talking to them saying, here's what we're trying to create. Can you talk about how you can help us? And can we taste some of your, your beans? And that's how we picked the right roasters for us. And, and it was everything from, you know, do you think about things in an, sustainable organic ethical like we thought about everything um and so it wasn't this broad here's an rfp send it out to 50 roasters on some list and say hey tell us what you know answer our questions it was a personal humanistic getting input by experts but having conversations to figure out which one was the right roaster for us Okay. So real quick, and we'll come back to the topic. I'm already going to take us down a, a side street. Okay. Um, I think it was on the travel channel several years ago. Did you ever see the show Uncommon Grounds? No. Um, so it was a show. Um, the, the, the main person involved, the, the host, if you will, uh, was Todd Carmichael. So he and his business partner own La Colombe. Um, they're a roaster and you know co coffee some you know provider at least i know they're in this area so mm. they're based out of philadelphia i don't know how far their distribution is uh, i mean at this point they offer multiple products so they've got a couple different um stores and then i know they have like the the canned espresso drinks and stuff like that so you you know you may see them in your grocery store there but like in the philadelphia airport they have like a, a coffee stand you can go up and get you know all different kinds of you know just your, your standard coffee to to an espresso to um lattes whatnot all the mm -hmm. various things so they've got that well the, this show was about him going to source the beans mm -hmm. so how i heard about it a friend actually told me about it so he's married to the philadelphia flyers anthemist and uh, I think she was on one of the local morning shows and they started talking about uh, the show that had just debuted. And, you know, like the, the whole premise of the show was, you know, coffee comes from some of the most dangerous places in the world, mm -hmm. like where the climate is for the best beans. It's typically some of the most dangerous places in the world, whether it's just the location, whether it's, you know, in areas where it's, you know, run by warlords or whatnot, um, you know, local militias. And he had a film crew come with him as he went to these various places. And they were asking her, like, do you have a list of places he can't go? She goes, oh, yeah, I've, I've got a list of places that it's grounds for immediate divorce if you ever went. Because <laughs> that was the thing. The, the premise with his business was he was the one who went out and sourced them. So he went out and found these local farmers, coffee farmers, and he'd have cash strapped to his leg. And like he'd say, here's 
50% up front and we'll get you the other 50% uh, for it because he's like, most of these farmers, like they don't have a bank account. You know, it's not like you can wire them money and whatnot. And I'm going way, way off topic, but I would say, look it up uh, on, you know, the travel channel, you know, chances are it's streaming somewhere. It's called Un Uncommon Grounds. And it's him going out to these exotic locations to um, to source source beans. <laughs> and I think that there's a strong parallel, and you may want to dive into this later, but I'll, I'll even further that uh, tangent. Um, it reminds me of a story. I think I may have talked about it before. So several years ago, um, Ben Gaines and I had uh, lunch at Takashiya sushi restaurant in downtown salt lake city mm -hmm. and we ate with takashi uh, the owner um and uh what are they called the sh whatever like the the top sushi guy in the in the restaurant um and his pr probably the premier sushi restaurant in the state of utah um and it's a single location and we asked him the question you're so popular when we go we get there about four 440, 445, and they open at five. And there's sometimes already a line starting to form down the street to get in that it, it's popular. And, and we asked him, it was like, you, you know, you have such a draw. Why don't you expand to more locations? And he said, the, the reason why my product is good is I personally go to the fish market and pick out our fish, you know, and that's not something I can trust to some, generic process to bring fish in i i have to personally go and examine the fish and evaluate them and pick the right ones for us and i can't do that for more than one location so yeah and i yeah, think it, there's an interesting it, parallel there yeah totally and oh like you know what i gotta write this down I okay. don't want to lose this because you just gave me another topic for another day. Give me a second here. You know, it's it's like, you know, like kind of what you were talking about in the beginning about like quality going downhill. Mm -hmm. Like you, know, you see this all the time when owners aren't that involved. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they, there are so many people that think they could just kind of get something going and then put somebody else in charge and it's going to continue the way that they've always done it and they can, they can walk away. And I want to flesh out that topic, but the idea, yeah, that is a great active, topic. And I have so many stories of businesses. Active, yeah. Active versus, you know, passive, active, you know, yeah. you know, business ownership. I like it. Yeah, like again, let's let's go with another sports analogy. How many times have you seen like a professional sports team owned by like a family, mm -hmm. and then they get sold to some kind of corporate conglomerate, and then the, the the team where the owner owned it for twenty years and they were passionate about it, they were active in it, and I'm not talking Jerry Jones level active in it. Yeah, but yeah, you know, they they were active in it and the the, the team played well then they get bought by a corporate conglomerate and then they just become another asset on the books and mediocrity starts to come in from everything from the on-field product to just the experience of going to to an event yeah and the interesting thing and i don't even know if we're ever going to get back around to our topic the interesting thing is i'm in in utah here we have the opportunity to watch that play out on two different fronts um so the utah jazz sense 
I think before I was born, it feels like, uh, were owned by the Miller family. Um, they owned a series of car lots uh, in the valley uh, and purchased the Utah Jazz, very passionate family-owned business. Um, recently, they sold to Ryan Smith, um, the founder of Qualtrics, which I think he sold to, what, SAP? For like $8 billion or $10 billion or something like that. Uh, so Ryan Smith purchased the Jazz. Um, and we'll see kind of how his stamp is a little different on the organization. Um, but still local, you know, kind of family-owned, if you will. Um, on the other side of it, we have Real Salt Lake, uh, the, the local soccer club, which has had a horrifically bad family owner, um, just the worst type of person. The league actually forced him to sell the team. Um, but I'm very suspicious of the guy who bought it, David Blitzer, who you may know. Um, who is a part owner of the Devils of the 76ers? Uh, oh, that that group that of, Chris, group of Crystal Palace. So it's an ownership group that owns like just a ton of sports organizations. So it's definitely not like a family in the valley owning the team. You know, it's it's a big conglomerate owning lots of sports organizations. How is that going to impact the soccer mm-hmm. team? So you know, it'll be interesting to see how these two paths play out with two brand new owners over the next uh, several years. Yeah. We're actually seeing that a bit with the, the flyers right now. So when the flyers were founded in 67, um, you know, they, they had Ed Snyder was the owner him and, and his, his company uh, Spectacor. And, you know, they had local TV deals and whatnot, but like he was, you know, he was the main person who owned it. Um, and then, in the mid nineties, he struck up a deal with Comcast, you know, while Comcast mm-hmm. was still more of a regional thing than it is now, um, where he sold part of the team. And I, I think he still had like a, a minor majority in the team. Uh, but like Comcast came in and purchased a major stake. Uh, it helped fund a new arena. Um, but like he still controlled the team or at least he had operational control over it mm-hmm. um and then he passed away four years ago four years ago five years ago and i mean at that point like the comcast was taking more and more of an active role in in running the team but like you're starting to see it now where um it's a different feel like you mm-hmm. you could tell that this is this team is it's an asset on the books of comcast mm-hmm. which comcast is a major beast now with them purchasing nbc universal 10 years ago mm-hmm. um they like you you can have a feeling like even diehard fans like me are just starting to like i don't want to go to games like it's mm-hmm. not it's not the same and like you know, people are starting. Like, you're starting to see movements of like people saying you're selling Comcast to sell the team. Like, get somebody in here who's going to be an active owner of the team and not just look at it as, as as an asset. Yeah, that we yeah that will be a fun topic because there's so many from sports mm-hmm. to restaurants to there's so just, many. just businesses mm-hmm. in general, like mm-hmm. an active ownership versus passive. But yeah. let's go ahead and get back to. To, to our topic around, you know, procurement and, and RFPs. And really the question I want to ask today, um, you know, I know some businesses feel that they just have to do it. 
Um, do RFPs actually provide value to a business? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, there, there is, is value. Um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of specific cases. So, you know, if, if you're buying a commodity and you're, you're really competing on price and you're trying to do volume, like I, I think an RFP is, is fine. Um, you know, if, if, and it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If you want to kind of be the Walmart, you know, low cost, high volume, you want to ship commodity. I think it's, it's, it's fine. And there's a lot of efficiencies to be had through using an RFP to find the right fill in the blank that, that you're looking for. There's also value to be had again on, on a pricing perspective, from my experience, both participating in and um, executing RFPs, the primary driver is to reduce costs. That's it. Um, so while it may be positioned as, you know, we're trying to go out and actually do research and find out about things, maybe that's a secondary or a tertiary output of an RFP. The RFP really is designed, number one, to beat up the incumbent on price. And, and that's it. Nothing more. Um, and that may be an oversimplification, but that's the reality of it in that once you have an, a partner, whether it's a service provider or providing um, goods or providing a SaaS product, once you've integrated with a partner, it is so complex and expensive to switch partners. It just is. There's so much that has to happen. And so, you know, as long as what you're getting product service is mediocre it's you know companies are most likely going to stay with the partner simply because they don't want to have to deal with the costs of switching um, however they'll often go through an rfp with existing partners as a way to beat them up on pricing and to kind of make sure that they know that that the the company has the upper hand you know we're not true partners seeing eye to eye on this we just want to remind you of that we control you and so the, the RFP really is designed to kind of put that fear into them that, hey, we can replace you whenever we want, you know, and we, we're going to keep you honest. And uh, an output of that is often, well, we'll do more for you for less in order to continually win your business, which if, if you do the math over a long enough RFP cycles, you know, you're just going to get closer and closer to zero and doing work for free. It's, it's a race to the bottom. Have you ever been on the procurement side of an RFP? Yeah. In, in fact, um, when I was, um, when I was on the client side, um, I helped design and run an RFP. Um, and <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting because I got called out on it. And at the time, interesting. Was, at the time I was really irritated about it, but looking back on it, I'm like, props to them, you know, like they, they saw through it. And so, um, we ran an RFP. I, I truly went into it. I was young in my career. I, I went into it with kind of bright eyes thinking, Oh, such a great opportunity to learn about all these solutions. The reality is, is that the management team had for all intents and purposes already picked who was going to win the RFP. So it was, it was pretty much a dog and pony show and it was part of going through the process, but really the outcome was all but known before I even started the RFP. 
and I did have one vendor, we were, we were purchasing a SaaS product. Uh, and I did have one vendor reach out to me and say, Hey, we're going to decline to participate. And I'm like, what? No, that's not a thing. Like we're, you know, you got to participate. And they're like, now, now we've seen too many of these and we know based on what we know about you and your organization that we are not going to be selected. And they were a hundred percent right. They were never going to be selected. I didn't know it at the time, uh, until later, but they did. They, they knew it. They knew they weren't going to be selected. And, you know, rightfully, they kind of said, hey, thanks for inviting us, but but no thanks. And at, again, at the time, I was like, who the hell are these people? What do they think they are special? You know, but they knew. And and now I know, <laughs> you know, like, I know how it works. So yeah, I've been on both sides of it. And I still, to this day, I still feel guilty about it because the companies that did participate in the RFP even if a lot of it was their sales and procurement teams doing copy paste, like even a half-assed RFP response takes many, many hours, like 10, 20, 30 hours easily to participate because these RFPs are typically incredibly, incredibly heavy handed. And this was back in like 2005, I think 2006 that I did this. And our company had a policy that we had to have both an electronic version and a print version of the RFP. So I got like these boxes with these huge three ring binders full of paper. And like, I'm like, Oh geez. Like we forced someone to go through this process and we knew we weren't going to select them. I feel, I still to this day feel bad that like I asked these people to do work that they were never going to win. So yeah, it sucks on both sides to be honest. I guess then in that case, tell me the flip side, then your thoughts on, on RFPs specifically from, from a services perspective, kind of getting, you know, getting sent an RFP. Yeah. So again, I think it depends on the type of, of business you're, you're running. So if you're a, an outsourced staff org agency, um, I think RFPs make a ton of sense. And I think if you're going to be in that space, you have to be willing to participate and have what it takes to win lots of RFPs, which is difficult, again, because most RFPs are designed for the incumbent to win. Um, but that's part of that space that, that you're in. Um, for, for me, it's not the type of business that I want to build and it's not the type of experience that I want to create. And so for me, it's been a very easy response, or, or response to say no. You know what? We're not going to participate, and here's why. Um, and I've said it many, many times, and I'm so I'm super comfortable saying it because it's an easy answer. You know, as part of a bigger conversation, we've talked about this maybe really early episodes of the podcast. One of the biggest challenges with creating a business that has a unique brand and and market position is it's incredibly hard to say no to money. And um, we've talked about this on the billable hour stance where, you know, when you're very early in starting up a company and, you know, no one knows how to pay for anything but billable hours, it's really hard to say, no, we're not going to take on a project where you're demanding billable hours. And I've had so many small agency owners reach out to me and say, hey, like we've, we kind of designed how we want to work and we don't want to do billable hours and we don't want to do that, but we're not able to make it work. And I say, well, tell me a little bit more about how your business operates. Like, wow, we got this one big client. So we made an exception for them and we're doing billables for them. Or like, you just answer your own question. That's why it doesn't work. 
Like if you're willing to compromise on your ideals, it's, it's never going to work. And, and so, you know, for me, it has become easier and easier to say like, these are the things that define our culture and our brand and how we work. And it's super easy for me to say no to things that don't align with that. And participating in RFPs is one of those things. Um, again, for what we're building, someone else, again, you may participate in an RFP and it may perfectly align with your business. For us, it doesn't. Um, in that it reduces the value of our of our brand. It, it deduces it down to something that you can put like a zero or a Boolean behind, yes or no answer behind. And I think that we're fundamentally more complex than that and our offering isn't something that you can deduce down to a couple boolean answers on an rfp it just it just can't be done um but but more importantly it's not the type of relationships that we're looking to build and because we're trying to be a more humanistic business and have more personal conversations that isn't something that you're going to get through a generic rfp form Going back to the coffee roasters, you know, I didn't send out some generic form that says answer these questions. I took the time to sit down with each of them individually and say, let's have a conversation about how you work and how we work to see if there's a mutual match here. And you can't do that through an RFP. And so that's why it's been very easy for me with prospects to say no. And with a couple of clients that we've had that have come to us and said, hey, we're going to go to RFP. I'm like, all right, good luck. Like what? Like, yeah, we're not participating in that. Like, I don't understand. Like, this isn't the type of relationship that we're interested in building. So if this is what you want to do, good luck. You know, it's not for us. What are some of the responses you've gotten when you've, you've held the line on that? Absolutely, absolutely shocked. So one, one of our clients was a long-term client, five or so years, and we were asked to RFP. And I said, no. And they panicked and they said, what, what? Well, you know, and, and, and in that, in that time it worked out because the relationship was there. And I said, no, and here's why. And they said, and this, this was what made the difference in that outcome is they said, this sucks. I don't want to do this. You know, we have a new, you know, VSVP, like he's put in this new process. We have to do all this stuff to procurement. How can we work together to like, you know, check the box that he, you know, says we have to do this and not lose you as a partner because we don't want to lose you. I'm like, okay, let's find a way to get creative and work together. And if that's me, you know, filling out the RFP with minimal effort to do that, I'm willing to do that. On the flip side, if it's a, Hey, well, we're, we're going, we're making sure we have the right partner. Well, I'm like, if, if that's what you're looking for, you've already answered your question. We're not the right partner for you. So we don't even need to go to RFP to figure that out. So it really comes down to, again, having proper communication and dialogue. And if there's mutual respect, again, going back to this, the RFP is to say, hey, I'm the I'm the buyer. I have power over you. If that's the intent, we're not interested. If it's a, hey, we're equals and we need to work this out and I've got this requirement that my legal team or my finance team is asking me to do, can you help me? Yeah, I'll help you. So, but... Everyone in the beginning is like shocked when I say no. They're like, what? What do you mean no? I'm like, no. It's not how we want to work. And it shocks people, right? Because because most, again, most people in business, they can't say no to revenue. 
And so they've, people have never been told no before. And I saw this with the billable hour thing, you know, very large companies. Um, Sephora is a great example of it, wanted to work with us. And they said, uh, but we need you to change your model just for us to do billable hours. No. What? I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. What, what do you mean? I'm like, no. You know, go f- if you can't budge on this, if you really want to work with us, you'll find a way around it. If you don't and you can't, then go find someone that will. And it shocks people because they're just, they don't hear that. Because again, most service businesses want to sell to anybody that will listen. Everything, and, and I'm sure you've seen it as well. Like we work with lots of agencies and a lot of them, if a company says we have some money we want to do, yeah, we do that. You're an SEO firm. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but we're also getting into printing thank you cards now. So if you want to do that, we'll do that. Like, what? But you know what I'm like? They, they want I've to been say there. yes to everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so. I've, I've totally been there where, where it's like the agency will say, yeah, we got to win the business. So we'll figure it out after we say yes. Yeah. But, you know, you talk about like the shock that you've gotten when you said no to things. It honestly makes total sense going back to what you were saying earlier about this not just being an evaluation tool, but also a way to to exert power and control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and again, I think that that's such a, a huge a huge part of it. And again, makes it an easy discussion for for us is that any relationship that we're going to be in that's going to be fulfilling, that's going to create value, that our team wants to work on. It has to be a relationship of mutual respect and trust. And that that can't be where any one side puts another side on the other side in a subservient position. Um, we may have vast expertise compared to what our clients have. They may have, you know, more resources and more fill in the blank than we have. But when we partner together, we're, we, we respect each other as equals. And any relationship where one side is looking for ways to force power onto the other in the end it's it's not going to be successful um and and my biggest concern is sure the concern for the business and the reputation and the brand but really is about our people for me it's a red flag of is this the type of organization that i want to subject our our team to right so if this is how we're going to be treated how are they going to treat our employees you know, and so that often goes through my head is that um, these situations where RFPs are used as a power move to me is very indicative of how our employees may be treated. And I just don't want to put them in that situation to be mistreated and to be, you know, feel like they're subservient to to the buyer. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, I'm thinking of my, my, my follow-up question to this. Like it's, and I mean, really like, I, I want to talk more cause so to kind of give, you know, a, a preview of where I want to take this. The next thing is I want to get more into the selling aspect of it today. We're talking more of the procurement side, specifically a tool that procurement uses around, you know, using an RFP mm-hmm. as part of that. Um, and you've kind of already started to set me up for that because the the next topic in this is going to be around the the selling side, and you know, like I, right right now I have it tentatively tight, uh, titled "How can you be? How can you genuinely sell your services?" Um, and I don't want to get into that today. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but you know, I, I guess we, we could start to wrap up this one. We can make this one a little bit on the, the shorter side because I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I also don't want to kind of, I, I want to leave room to really talk about the, the, the selling side of things. Um, but you know, like, how do I want to word this? Yeah. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Like, have you, like, you know, we were talking about RFPs, you know, you've obviously made your opinion very, very clear on kind of where you stand with them and you don't see them as, as being a sign of what could be a successful long-term relationship. That's right. Like that, that, to you, that that's a red flag in the kind of relationships you want to build with, with your, with your clients. Um, have you ever seen it where, you know, it's, it's not just something that they have to go through. You know, you gave that example, but maybe like it has been something where it has been a, a successful tool. No, I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. And, and not to say again, not to say it, it can't be or hasn't and is it for sure. But in my experience, both on the buyer and on the seller side, I've never seen it, it work. So um, I guess I would take that and pivot it to, to kind of wrap up this episode in that, you know, this isn't a condemnation of the RFP. This isn't to say this is how you should do it. This is this is a view into how we do it and how we think about it. Um, what is important is that you think about what you want to do and what you want to create and the culture you want to foster and then make decisions. An RFP is just one piece of it. Make decisions about those inputs into your business and how you're going to act that are going to support the type of business that you want to create. It's funny timing because I, um, I put out this tweet this morning. Oh, um, I, I totally missed this. Thing. Okay. Where I said, um, Every time I've talked about a topic like this, an RFP tends to be a really hot button topic. Every time I post about an RFP, it is almost guaranteed that I'm going to get a response that looks like this. Well, if you want to be successful in business, you have to learn to like doing RFPs or fill in the blank, charging by the billable hour, you know, fill in the blank of everything that I don't want to do. And I'm like, no, that's not why I started a business. And I often think about, uh, Yvonne Chouinard's quote about the entrepreneur, where he said, if you want to understand the mindset of the entrepreneur, you have to study the juvenile delinquent. Uh, because basically, they're saying with their actions that this sucks, I'm going to do it my own way. And and that's how I think about, about business. And I think how everyone should think about it. Not just, not just uh, well, everyone bills by the hour or everyone uses RFPs. So if you're going to be successful, you have to. Like, that's a stupid answer, you know? Think about what you're trying to do in your situation. If billing by the hour works, you should do that. You know, if, if using RFPs or responding to RFPs helps to better define your culture and your values and how you work, you should do that, but don't just do it because it's the default answer. Do it because you've thought through it and you're deliberately choosing to do X, Y, or Z because it fits the model of the type of business that you're trying to build for us. Billing by the hour doesn't support that. Participating in RFPs doesn't support that. So we don't do it. Your business might be different. That's the work. That's what you have to figure out. Mm-hmm. And that's a great perspective. Like it's not the do, you know, I, it drives me nuts when I hear people say, do this because I do it and, and right. it works for me. That's right. You know, 
this is my favorite thing. So this should be your favorite thing. This is my preferred way of doing it. So it should be your preferred way of doing it. And I know for me personally, that's typically the advice I run away from. And you should, right? And you should, because there's no single path. Yeah. And then that's the way a lot of our episodes end when we kind of propose like this kind of question. It's, this is, this is our perspective. This is my perspective. This is my experience with it. Take that and do with it what you will. That's right. You know, and, you, you got to find what works for you. And I think that that's the best approach is that, you know, read lots of books, listen to podcasts, learn from others. They're all hopefully spend your time consuming things that cause you to think and give you ideas and, and, and sparks curiosity, but none of those should be used as a, um, paint by number. Like if I paint this, then I'm going to paint them, you know, Mona Lisa. It's not how it works. So use them as inputs to think about and, and get curious about, and then figure out how does that relate to what you're trying to do and then do what you're trying to build because there isn't one size fits all approach. And anyone that is pitching it has some deep ulterior motives. Usually, usually the people that are pitching that are trying to sell you a book or their, or their, or their consulting course on how to be, you know, a super rich business person. Like there's the a seminars. Mo- yeah. The seminars they're, they're, they're trying to sell you something by saying my way is the only way. So you, that should set off some major alarm bells. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. So let's go ahead and wrap it up there um, before we start really repeating ourselves. But this is fun. I think this will be a fun little series to to dig into. So as as a prep for for the next one, I want to talk uh, a bit about sales. Um, And, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier, you know, like, you know, those agencies out there that it's like, do you do this? Yes, we do. And, you know, know, they, they kind of come up with some kind of sales pitch, whether they actually do it or not. So how to actually be honest and genuine in selling. I like it. Cool. Well, then we will go ahead and wrap up there and catch everybody later. See ya. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.